when you decide what's good and bad, you are deciding what people will read in the future and what people will see America to be. Mm -hmm. Um, When you cut out 999 out of 1,000 voices, what are you doing to American culture? And what are you doing to Americans' sense of themselves? I think that ultimately digitizing more and making more available makes unheard voices heard again. Welcome to the ProQuest podcast. I'm Matt Toby. Today, my co-host, Courtney Suchu, and I are going to be continuing our conversation with literary sleuth, Zach Turpin. You know, you uh, you described sort of the process um, that I, I would assume is fairly typical with these findings where you yourself discover something and then you share it with a friend. And if they think that it's it's a, an original finding, then you... you uh, share it with some scholars and then, uh, and then with the estate. Um, so that, it seems like a, a, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of moments of, of, uh, anxiety and then excitement when you, when you have it confirmed at each level, uh, have there been instances, does this happen often where maybe you'll think that you find something and then someone else thinks that you found something, um, and then you get kind of down the road of that process and then, you know, you get to a certain level of a scholar, uh, of, of that, of that writer who says, no, you know what, this is actually something that we were already aware of. (laughs) Um, you know, this is something that happens. Um, I think it's, it's a sort of logical fallacy of discussions like this, that successes and failures are relatively proportional, right? This is like for every failure, this is success. This kind of work is, largely failure driven. Um, mm-hmm. like when you, when you think about looking for something on Google, that's largely successful algorithmic work. So when, when you type in a Google search, how often do you have to go to the second page of Google's search results to look, mm-hmm. to get what you're looking for? Mm-hmm. Right. Because Google search algorithms are incredible, but they're also searching through things that are generally, um, actively trying to be found, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of like, you know, keyword and metadata management that are trying to get things to you. Uh, this stuff is the opposite. So when you're on, say, ProQuest historical newspapers, um, a, lot of, a lot of the work that you do ends in failure. L- little bitty things, right? You type in a key phrase, you hit enter, you don't find what you're looking for. Um, but it's not like it's a complete void. Every time you get search results on ProQuest, you get something interesting to read. Um, you're being saturated in a literary period or a literary culture. Mm-hmm. So even though you don't necessarily find a thing that you're looking for, there's so much else that you read along the way. Um, there's a great scholar. His name is Stephen Ramsey. He, he does a lot of digital work and he calls this the hermeneutics of screwing around. <laughs> it's, it's the idea that like, if you go to like a bookstore or a record store, record stores don't exist. If you, if you go to a library, things like that, that you often are sort of wending your way towards something. Mm-hmm. You don't just go right to it. And that the value of that work is in the wending as much as in the finding. Um, and sometimes that's when the most interesting discoveries are made, are, are like along yeah. the way. When you kind of get off the track that you've intended for yourself, there are all kinds of surprises out there. It's true. And, you know, again, failure is educational. Nobody learns by succeeding all the time. You know, my, often I have students who are very concerned about their grades. And this is, this is normal, right? This is what students need as they're professionalizing. Mm-hmm. But if they already knew everything, 
and they did it all perfectly, why would they even be in school? Um, and so I think often it is good to fail uh, and often to fail just in fantastic fashion. So you asked before about if I, if I'd ever found anything and was then told that it already existed, there have been times. So I had found some smaller items by Louisa May Alcott, some early stories and poems. Um, and I, I was told by, uh, by reviewers, it's like, Oh, you know, these are already known about. And that was an interesting experience because the, the, the excitement that I felt about these um, was diminished a little bit by the idea that they were already in existence. But I think part of that was me losing some careerism. I think it, it's difficult to think about not only what you want to find, but why you want to find it mm-hmm. and to whose benefit it's for. There, there was also one time where I, I had thought that I found a lost Melville essay. And if you know your Melville, you know that he... he his work is very well studied. It, his stuff just doesn't come up. Um, the last time of anything by Melville was discovered was decades ago. Mm-hmm. So I, at the time I thought I had found this essay about traveling in Florence it's called Florentine mosaics and just everything about it fit the time period fit. He used, um, Melville was, uh, was a fan of really unusual words. Um, and this one had words like parallelo pipetal, uh, it, it was just crazy. And I was like, Oh, thank God. You know, um, what is a parallelopipedal? Parallelopipedal. I may have to Google this. It, it's it's like a geometric shape. Parallelopipedal. You could tell Please. us anything, and we would believe you. Yeah, a parallelopiped <laughs> is a three-dimensional figure formed by six parallelograms. Okay, so it's like if you put six parallelograms, it looks like a skewed cube or gotcha. skewed. Yeah. So he he was talking about Florentine architecture, all these ancient things. Um, and I had found that that much of this essay was cribbed from a travel guide uh, put out by um, Murray in England. And this is, again, something that w- Melville would do a lot. He would crib from travel guides. So I thought, oh, I got this one in the bag. You know, I, I sent it complete with an essay to a major journal. Everything is great. Um, as their board is reviewing it, I, I was screwing around a little further, and I found that what in fact happened was that just some other writer of the period had also gone to Florence, had also written about these things, also had a penchant with words. Um, and I found from looking at their journals, I think I was looking on Google books that this was in fact written by someone else. Um, so that was a real, that was a real moment of, uh, like it, my soul clenched up <laughs> having, to, having to tell these people, forget it, forget everything. It's not real. Um, but the, I guess these are the dangers of this work is that if you are looking for missing materials, either known or unknown, you have to expect that you're going to fail spectacularly and pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. That's just part of the part of the work. Um, and it's part of the fun. Yeah, is this a large it's... community? And, and are you are are the people who who do literary sleuthing? Are are they in touch with each other a lot? Are there conventions uh, I know. So, uh, um, it community is, is, a, I'm not sure if that's the appropriate word or not, because, you know, in some ways this is work that literary scholars have done since time immemorial. Sure. You know, ever since there have been authors whose work was so great that people wanted more of it, there have been people who've been trying to find more. Um, yeah, I mean, you can think about Shakespeare is an easy example. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare is known to have written at least one or two plays that are now, no longer extant. Uh, Love's Labor's one, maybe one of them, you know, sort of like sequel to Love's Labor's Lost. Um, the history of Cardinio is another. 
these may or may not have been complete plays, but ever since those have been uh, known as like potential plays, people have just been scouring the earth for them. Um, so it isn't as if like people just started doing literary recovery work, but I think as a distinct field in its own right, where professionals can dedicate much of their time to it and, and not just like a few tenured professors with TAs, um, because I think formally this could only be done by people who had resources, mm-hmm. um, who had, you know, an army of TAs and travel funding and they could go to different archives around the world. Um, you know, good for them. But these days, much of what makes this work possible is digital mediation. So again, ProQuest Historical Newspapers is a great example. As long as you have a subscription to the service, as long as you have regular internet access, this is something you can do as an undergraduate, as a graduate, as, you know, an overworked assistant professor um, who does not leave the state of Idaho, by the way, to look for these things. Um, it's, it's just a different ball game now. Um, there's, I don't know that there's really community yet, Mm -hmm. but I do, I have been able to, because these works get in touch with some people who do this kind of work and everyone is very open and giving and collaborative. Mm -hmm. So if anything, I think it's about time we start having conferences together. Like I said before, Getting some publicity from this work has led me to be able to make relationships with other people who do this kind of stuff. Um, And it's led to really interesting collaborations. So a a good example is I got to work with Bonnie Shaker and Angela Pettit. So these are two scholars who um, six or seven years ago, they found the final short story by Kate Chopin. Uh, If you know Kate Chopin, she wrote The Awakening. It's a great um, novel written in 1899. Uh, one of the one of the first pieces of scholarship that inspired me was this article by Bonnie and Angela. They they wrote about finding the short story. It's called Her First Party, um, and they also, by the way, found it on ProQuest. I might add, this is a fun fact for you. Oh. Um, they uh, they you know they they were doing similar work. They were just sort of trying to make sure that they had covered all their bases, mm-hmm. um, looking for different works by Kate Chopin. And then suddenly they found this thing and they, they both of them, I think had the immediate realization of what they found. Um, but it was really inspiring to read this work by them and to understand that it is something that not only, um, encourages collaboration, but that people like me could do, you know, when I read their article, I think it was like a, like a first or second year doctoral candidate. Um, and to see the work that they did really, I think helped activate me as this kind of researcher too. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's. I think it really merits community because there's just so much work to do. I mean, my God, the the just the number of um, famous missing works that we know of is staggering. And then beyond that, all the things we don't know that we don't know. Right. Um, the the sort of Donald Rumsfeldian unknown unknowns. It's God only knows how many of those there are. Yeah. And now among the things that are known that are. St- that are out there. Is there a, is there a Holy grail discovery that, that, uh, <laughs> that would just be the, the be all end all for you personally? For me? Oh yeah. I mean, there's a few. Okay. So I mentioned Shakespeare's Cardinio before, of course, anyone, I, I have no, no illusions that, that 
anyone is much less myself is going to find that. But uh, of course, one would want to find a lost play by William Shakespeare. Sure. But I think I think the ones that are both likelier to be found and are more personal uh, for me, their, their goals and their, their grails, are things like um, so Melville. Herman Melville's thought to have written a novel in 1853 called Isle of the Cross, and there's there's some like evidence in in his letters that that this was a completed novel. Um, it, it just sort of disappeared. It was, it, publishers rebuffed him. Um, there is some evidence to suggest he folded some of it into, into short stories, which is pretty uh, compelling. Mm-hmm. But in any case, it just kind of vanished, um, as did an early book of poetry which has called, uh, very creatively called Poems by Herman Melville in 1860. Um, these would be something that any scholar would give their left arm for, mm-hmm. including me. I will literally give my left arm if I get to just hold and read those. I hope you're right-handed. Um, I am right-handed. Oh, I, I, yeah, I was careful to pick the you know, non-dominant. But um, there's, there's plenty of other things, too. Um, so Whitman is, is thought to have had at least one or two more novels that we don't know about. Um, in 1850, which is right around the time he is, is sort of going easy on journalism, uh, and is no longer an editor. He sends um, a manuscript to a couple of New York area newspapers. Um, in fact, we know a lot about it. He, it's called the Sleep Talker. He adapted it from a, a very long and very boring Danish novel um, that had been written in the 1830s. But he he says that he takes this novel by a Danish author named Ingeman, and he he drastically reduces its size. He Americanizes it, and he says it's full of incident and romance. Um, he even estimates how long it is. He says, so uh, the manuscript that you hold would fill roughly, I think he says, 63 leaded columns or three columns a day for 22 days. So you can get a sense of how big this thing mm-hmm. is. He is rejected a couple of times, and then it's just gone. Um, and it's, it's, again, it's one of those things where, on the one hand, I think, who knows? It's probably lost in the midst of time. And then on the other hand, you think, well, somebody like Whitman has the sort of bibliographic personality in which they're always hustling. Whitman was always trying to get his work out there and make, make money as well as make art. And I think, like, I just don't, I can't imagine him throwing away an entire novel. And there's all sorts of smaller periodicals and newspapers in that ecosystem of the time that we have yet to check that are not digitized, that are not even available uh, fully in archives. Who knows where it could be? There's, there's really, it, there's no one grail. There's, there's just, there's, um, I think if every time you think there might be one miracle text, you begin to realize that there's so much more than that. And again, these are only the ones we know about. Right. Um, but there's, there's just so many things we have yet to find. Um, if you, if you like the wizard of Oz, um, the, the author of the wonderful wizard of Oz, L Frank Baum was, unbelievably prolific he wrote something like two or three novels a year for a while Hmm. um he is known to have no fewer i I believe i have this right no fewer than four lost plays and four lost completed novels wow we even know their names so it's it's truly staggering to think that someone as famous as as an l frank Baum could have so many um gaps in his body of work. And, and that's just a person who's famous. I mean, think about all those other personages making art who are not world famous and how much we have 
yet to find. So in, in the present day, in the digital age, there's, I think there's a sense that nothing is ever lost, but do you, do you think that that's a false sense? Do you think that the, that, uh, works are, will still be lost even when it, it seems like everything is being preserved forever? Yeah. So, hmm. I, you know, I'm of two minds, um, because on the one hand, like Courtney said before, the, there are, there are still the, there's the ripple effect that comes from art, even if it doesn't still exist. Um, it has an effect on a culture. It has an effect um, on the development of art and the development of thought. So in that way, you know, like you just said, nothing is ever lost. The, the Whitman said the exact same thing in a later poem. He says, nothing is ever lost or can mm-hmm. be lost. And he's thinking about the ways in which um, the things that we do and the things that we are um, ripple through eternity. And that's true. On the other hand, things can definitely be lost. I mean, like if there's one, this is just one good example, but the greatest enemy of, of literary art is fire. Fire has taken so much, so much from humanity. Um, Byron's memoirs, they were burned by his, um, his literary executors who apparently thought they were too racy um, they probably uh, were. I'm sure they. I'm sure they were. And w- that is such, we want exactly. to read them. such an irreparable loss. Um, uh, oh, what's the other one? There are so many. Um, uh, oh, uh, Nikolai Gogol, who wrote Dead Souls, who's this great Russian writer. Uh, he wrote two more volumes of Dead Souls, but at the end of his life, he was. Um, he w- he was starving himself. He was having all these delusions. He he burned them himself. Um, there are all sorts of writers whose work, it, L. Frank Baum is a good example. So many of those lost novels, lost plays may have burned in a fire, uh, a theater fire in the early 20th century. Um, so on the one hand, I think that digital mediation and digital preservation are the, the last best host of literary culture. It's a place that not only provides access, but preserves texts in, in ways that provide some redundancy. You know, like if, if something is, is, if a server is destroyed, there's backup servers. Um, di- di- you know, digitization, there's a lot you can say against it. There's, there's not that tactile mm-hmm. feel of the page. There's not the smell of the ink. I get that. But it's one more way of making sure that um, readers have access to, to culture and to philosophy and to art. Um, but that doesn't mean that everything is safe. Uh, so I don't know. I, am one of those, I think everybody has their sort of inmost sort of desires about this kind of thing, but I would just love to digitize everything. I want everything online. I want everything available to everyone. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I think, a an innocent way of looking at texts and at the world, but why Absolutely. not? Well, that, that also makes me think you, you say that you, you think it'd be, it'd be, like great if everyone had access to all of this content. What is the value of that? Like we we have kind of high minded conversations in our office sometimes about the value of humanities, and and why why it's important that everyone has at least some some background in studying history and literature and the arts. I can imagine as a professor that that comes up for you sometimes too. Like students are like, "Ugh, why do we have to read these poems? What do you what do you think is the value for just people to?" have access to this information. 
I will actually say university of Idaho students are very good. They're very obliging. They're curious. They, they don't say that to my face. Um, <laughs> they, they, you know, they, even though I'm sure sometimes, especially at the end of the semester, oh, they they're saying it. Way. Um, yeah, I'm sure they are. But, um, so your question is why, what is the value of making everything or as much as possible available? Well, what's, the, what's the value of even studying this stuff? Like why, why do Walt Whitman's and Anne Sexton's matter? Oh yeah. Well, you know, so for the authors whom we already value, like Whitman and Sexton, they are, they are like in the pantheon of American art. So it's, it, it's not like you have to make this major case for anybody, you know, if, if it has their name on it, people are automatically going to have some level of interest. Um, I think it's when an artist is less well known that you, you have to start thinking about why, but I think that is, that is the answer. Um, so th- I'm also thinking from the perspective of like funding and how, how education is kind of sometimes steering more towards preparing people for careers rather than, yeah critical thinking or, or enjoying the arts in literature. Hmm. Do you have thoughts about why, why studying literature at all is an important endeavor? Yeah. Well, so I mean, this literature, so I'm, I will defend the study of literature on this podcast. Okay. I will do it. I'll do it. Um, Literature is useful in a lot of different ways. So as you mentioned before, not only when you study literature are you ensconcing yourself in the thoughts of prior ages, not only are you reading received wisdom from generation after generation, and these are generations that led to you, but you're also wallowing in contradictions. You're wallowing in complexity. You're analyzing. You're being a critical reader and thinker. And if you do this kind of work, which many students end up doing, you're also being a, a sort of a cultural gatekeeper. Um, and I think that this is one of the good answers that I have for why in, in Zachary Turpin's ideal world, we would have access to all sorts of things digitally. It's because um, the, I think there's some, I, I'm trying to think of how to put this. Okay. So here's a good example. When you think about great American literature, whatever that means to you, you probably see something in your head. Like you see like a bookshelf uh, or maybe a few key titles. You might even see like a, like a library's worth of books, something like that. That drastically, drastically underestimates the size of American literary production. Um, when, when you think about American literature, we, we all are thinking too small way too small. I mean, this is what we're thinking. Like it's not uh, the nine tenths of the iceberg that's underwater. It's like the 999 thousandths. Um, the amount of art and thought that has been put on the page is so staggering that we, we still just don't know what we're talking about when we talk about American literature. And I think one of the great reasons, uh, or one of the great things about, um, services like ProQuest, right. Is that they give you access to so much more um, and in particular, I think it undoes certain valuations. So like when you, when you think about great literature or, or when you see things that are easy to access, a lot of that has been determined by a sequence of decisions or valuations that were made by people in the past. People in the early mid 20th century are deciding what's important and what's therefore going to be microfilmed and then digitized and then made available. Um, that's good because they were thinking to American cultural heritage, but that also means that they were excluding a great deal in the interest of access. 
So when you decide what's good and bad, you are deciding what people will read in the future and what people will see America to be. Mm-hmm. Um, when you cut out 999 out of a thousand voices, what are you doing to American culture? And what are you doing to Americans' sense of themselves? I think that ultimately digitizing more and making more available makes unheard voices heard again, makes yeah. it possible. And ultimately, that's not just relevant to people who are literary scholars. I mean, this applies... I'm a little bit idealistic about it, but I think this is true for for people who are not in academics. I, I agree with you. Um, you know, and, and again, like, this is me saying this from what is sometimes described as an ivory tower, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a professor of literature. I do this for a living. Um, I'm, I'm a white, uh, cisgendered, middle-class male. Like, there's, there are many ways in which I have to acknowledge a great deal of privilege that I have. And I think one of the reasons that I'm excited to do this work is that it's increasingly something that I see as my duty to turn that privilege mm-hmm. uh, to being an ally to uncovering this is why I want to shake Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s hand. It's because he's bringing back unheard voices, Mm -hmm. right? He recovers voices that people don't think about when they think about great American literature, even though once you read them, it changes your idea of what culture in a society is and can be. Um, So I I don't know. It's just like, you know, I, I think formerly when I started doing this stuff about half a decade ago, I had the idea that, researchers of this sort were almost like a cleanup crew, right? Like they're just sweeping up the last few things before the, you shut the door and lock it. Um, and now I think it's, it's entirely opposite. I think that um, we're entering an, like a new age of literary discovery and understanding um, that we're only just beginning to see what our literature is and what it means and whose voices contribute to it. And I think services like ProQuest are going to be the catalyst for this sort of work. I hope so. I think that's a great... Yeah, here's hoping. (laughs) I think that's a great notion to end on. Oh, my goodness. Um, I I feel like uh, I could uh, keep asking you uh, questions about this all day. Uh, I I very, very much appreciate you doing this uh, for us, Zach. Um, And... uh, I, I really hope that um, you keep us updated on uh, your discoveries and uh, and hopefully uh, we can we can check in with you again uh, down the road and uh, see what uh, see what you've been up to. Absolutely. This has really been a pleasure. I, uh, I have rarely had this much fun um, talking about this kind of work. So thank you very much for having me. We're setting the, the bar very high for the with the first episode. So I hope. <laughs> I hope the rest of the podcast uh, is as much fun and as interesting as this has been. Fingers crossed.